Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have a guest on the show and I'm speaking to Angela Rawlinson, mother of six children who is married and lives in Gloucester. Now Angela is here today to speak about her incredible story in her eating disorder recovery alongside other mental health struggles. Angela is truly an inspiration as only in lockdown last year she was in the depths of an eating disorder, struggling with numerous ED behaviours and feeling very hopeless and trapped. Just over a year later, Angela is in a very different place, having worked on the underlying trauma, overhauling her lifestyle and relationships significantly and investing wholeheartedly in the eating disorder recovery journey. And she has six children. You might know Angela from Instagram, who's at surviving underscore six underscore. Angela is also a mental health blogger and is clearly a passionate advocate for spreading messages about eating disorder awareness and support. And I believe that she'll be shortly starting counseling training in the autumn, which is very exciting. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and hearing about Angela's journey so far. I know it's going to be an inspirational one. Let's get to the interview. Hi there, Angela. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So, Angela, would you introduce yourself, please, to the listeners? Yeah, so I'm Angela. I'm mum of six. I'm actually in recovery for an eating disorder. I have, I say in recovery because I will forever be on this process. I see it as a forever journey. I have done a lot of work around it and especially this year, I have overcome a lot of my struggles with it. Okay, no, lovely. Well, thank you, Angela, so much for agreeing to come on today, because I know that it wasn't so long ago that you were in a very dark place and really struggling. So I really appreciate you coming on today, almost kind of so fresh out of some of those darkest places. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, Angela, would you just tell us a little bit about your story, sort of going back a, sort of a bit about sort of eating and also sort of other struggles with mental well-being? Yeah, so from the age of 14, that is when my eating disorder behaviours actually started. I was struggling to process in my head childhood trauma that I'd faced when I was nine. It didn't initially affect my childhood trauma, the abuse that I'd suffered, because I didn't know any different. I thought everyone went through what I went through. I didn't see it as an issue until I hit my teen years and I started to have my own friends going out more. And I realised that actually I was different in that aspect. Um, So I would control my situation mainly by food. I would binge purge a lot of the time there was some restriction but mainly it was binge purging I wanted to control I wanted to control everything I didn't have much control of my feelings I didn't have control of my situation and I didn't have the tools then to learn how to do that I'd go out as a teenager and I'd be using my body in ways that I shouldn't be so then I became I got this this disassociation with my body and I started to not like it very much. I didn't like anything about it. 
So I would use it and I would abuse it. And the eating disorder would help me do that. It was a form of self-harm via my food that I ate. I also had issues with self-harm growing up. I was under services as a teenager, but that didn't help. I didn't really get much help from that. I didn't really enter services until I was 17. And then by the time I got the counselling offered me, I hit 18 and I was thrown out of there. So I didn't get any of the help that I needed. School didn't help me. They didn't understand. Even though they knew some of the problems, they just wouldn't address them. I then got into my early adulthood. I had my daughter at a very young age. That relationship wasn't fantastic. It Looking back on it now, it would never have worked, even if I wanted it to work. He was mentally abusive and he did continue to be mentally abusive as she grew up. That didn't stop me. I did find my husband, who I've been with for 14 years. I continued to have five children. But in amongst that, I battled with my mental health terribly. I was up and down. I was cycling between binge eating, restriction, self-harm. I, I used that as my coping mechanisms. I did not cope and deal with anything that was thrown at me very well. I would just shrivel up and panic and I was consumed by this darkness all the time I wasn't one for not wanting help I wanted help so badly so I was under services I was begging and reaching out for help I just wasn't offered what I felt that I needed inside I'd go to all these counseling sessions I'd go to all these therapies I'd go to do CBT and I was learning all this information but I couldn't put it onto myself it just didn't mean anything then it wasn't until I was 34 that things really started to hit rock bottom. My eating disorder took over. I was formally diagnosed in the November of 2019 with anorexia. It was hard. It was a battle. I didn't initially think that I had an eating disorder, even though it'd been creeping up within the years. It didn't just come bang and I was anorexic. I It was building up within those years before because it was my coping mechanism. It was the only way that I could deal with things and to deal with internally all the trauma that I'd faced I would use the food. So in November 2019, I was forming diagnosed with anorexia. I was under mental health services where I live. I was given the ultimatum then to pick what service of help I would want, whether I would want them to continue with psychotherapy or whether I go under the eating disorder team. And obviously at that time, when someone asks you a question, what you want, and you're feeling in a really, really dark place, you can't make that decision. You, you just don't know. You, it's hard enough to decide what you want to do every day, let alone decide what choice of treatment you want. When you, you go to these professionals and you think, oh, they're going to help me. Well, this is what I believed anyway. You know, I wanted someone to just take me by the hand and say, this is what you need to be doing. And someone came to me and they said, you need to pick what's going to kill you first. And I said, well, if anything, <laughs> anyway, that is so harsh to say to somebody. I'm like, mm. okay. Well, I guess the eating, I, I know there's a little, I'm, I wasn't stupid. I knew there was a problem because I wasn't eating, but I didn't see it as an eating disorder. I just saw it as my control. Mm. So I said, well, I'll pick the eating disorder. And, you know, I went for the initial assessment and that was in December 2019. And they were put me on a waiting list. They said, yeah, we're going to start you with CBT. And that'll be in the following year. So all this pressure of all this extra stuff and actually not dealing with anything built up even more and more in my head and the eating disorder got worse not only was I restricting I was binge purging pretty much three to four times a week at that point I was actively taking laxatives and I was doing my running now running to me is my release it was 
never a part of my eating disorder, but I didn't realize then that it had became a part of my eating disorder. Mm. I went into the eating disorder clinic, which I must say were fantastic when I got in through to the services. And I was very lucky to be, as I was under mental health services, they were able to get me into the eating disorder team and be able to get that help. Mm-hmm. When I went back to them, presented to them in, I think it was March of 2020. At this point, I had lost so much weight and was severely underweight that they basically, I wasn't allowed to leave the room unless I, because my, they, when you go for a check at there or go to see, they check how you're doing, they do all your observations. So they'll check your heart, your blood pressure. They also weigh you. And my observations weren't looking great. They were not looking amazing. And so they they sat me in the room. They said, how did you get here? And I said, my husband's in the car. And they said, look, we need you to do this day treatment. We know you've got six children at home. We don't want to put you into inpatient, but we want you to do day treatment. So I said, well, and even at that point, I didn't think I had an eating disorder. I didn't think anything was wrong, you know. I was still in denial. So I was like, well, I don't know what I need to do. She said, well, we're not going to let you leave this room until you, your husband's coming. We want him to help agree with this. So I was like, okay. So I said, get my husband out of the car. And this was the biggest thing I've ever had to do was to bring my husband into the room with me and admit and have other people admit that there was something wrong. Obviously, he knew I had issues with eating. Mm. He knew that. He knew I'd suffered with my mental health illness. You know, I'm open and honest about it. I don't think he really wanted to admit how bad things, and I don't think he really knew how bad things have got and the things that I was engaging with because he was at work Monday to Friday. The majority of the things that I was doing were secretive because that's an eating disorder's biggest thing is to be secretive. And I remember being in this room and then telling me, actually, that is my dog's business. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, you know, they told him everything that I'd told them and they said to me, we, we can't leave you this room unless you drink this glass of water for us so that we know that you've got some fluids in you. Because I hadn't really drank for a few days. Mm-hmm. And so they gave me this. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're Sports Direct's massive mugs. And they gave me one of those and they filled it with water. And I can remember I wasn't allowed to leave this room unless I'd drank this Sports Direct mug of water. And I can remember looking into it and crying because in my head, I physically could not drink this water and it was water, right? Water mm-hmm. has no calories. It fuels, you know, it gives you hydration. That's all it does. And I couldn't do it. And I cried and I cried my heart out because that's when the realization hit me, that realization hit me that I had a problem because I couldn't drink water. And it was just because, and the reason I couldn't drink it was because it wasn't in my plan. I hadn't planned to drink that water that day. I didn't know mm-hmm. what they were giving me. And it was scary, you know. So mm. I drank it because I had to drink it because otherwise I wouldn't be allowed to leave that room, right? So I did that. Then I went away and they said, look, we're, we're putting you onto the day treatment program as a matter of urgency because you, you need it. They put me onto day treatment as a matter of urgency. And day treatment program, for any that don't know, is where you, you're not in sleeping overnight, but you go Monday to Friday they feed you your meals every single day with your snacks and you learn basically you get all your therapy there you do so much they take you out into the community where you can learn to eat in like cafe sort of thing and so that was why I was due to start lo and behold we hit lockdown in March 2020 the week that I was due to start and all facilities stopped at where I was at 
And I had to do my recovery via lockdown at home in the end. And actually, and they allowed me to do it because I had my husband home 24-7 because he, either of, at this time, with first of lockdown in England, we, nobody worked. We yeah. were all together 24-7. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't do anything. So it then became, I was allowed to stay at home with phone calls from the clinic every two days to check in on me and to go through the therapy and stuff. And actually, it was probably the best thing that I could ever do for me because I had to be 100% truthful for my husband because I couldn't lie. I couldn't actually actively, because of lockdown, I couldn't actually actively do any binge purging because I was at home. I couldn't go out and over-exercise because we weren't technically allowed to be out there. The only thing that I could carry on was restricting because the fear of the food was so big. So that's when I embarked on the day. It wasn't something that, you know, I started and I got immediately better because it doesn't work like that. I started off, you know, doing the whole talking about food with the therapist, my fear of food, where I got these fears from, you know, all the basic stuff. And then the most important thing was refeeding me because obviously I wasn't eating enough. And I remember them saying to me, right, this is what we want you to eat. And I looked at them and I was like, no, don't have them. <laughs> there is no way I'm going to eat what you're telling me. And that, that amount of food in a day, because it was shocking, you know, from somebody that was eating mm. the bare minimum, once probably eating one meal a day or not even managing that and the amount of calories that I was having, they then wanted me to have breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, tea, snack, and and the amount of calories in that, and I was so scared. And I remember saying to myself, I can't do this. There's no way that I can do this. He goes, you want to get better? I said, I know I do. But, you know, and he kind of explained to him the fear that I had around food was so big. And mm. he was just like, he didn't get it. Because he's like, just eat it. I said, I can't just eat it. I'd sit there with this food in front of me and I would cry. And I would cry my heart out because I couldn't, like, eat a bowl of cereal or a piece of toast because bread was not in my safe list. One of the most important things I did was write down my fear foods and they, you had to write them in a red, amber and green list. And I wrote them all out. And the amount of safe foods I had was minimal. And I mean, it was so small. And it's really funny because it doesn't necessarily mean that those safe foods were healthy foods. You know, all my safe foods were little Haribo sweets or jelly babies because that's what I would fuel my body on. It was just the foods that I'd created these fears around. And that fear was genuine you know it was gut-wrenching it was in your belly fear that you put a bowl of cereal in front of me and I would cry my eyes out especially if it had whole milk in it that just you know that was scary so you know what I was doing was I was listening to the therapist and I was trying and one thing that lockdown did do to me and it did it allowed me to be a bit more secretive so I would engage in this therapy and I wouldn't be 100% truthful I'd have to fill in my food diaries and send them off to them and they'd be like you sure that's what you're eating then I had to go in for weigh-ins still I was still allowed to go in for weigh-ins and they were like it's not it's not adding up you know (laughs) me thinking me it's like yeah no this is absolutely fine and I realized that I wasn't you know I wasn't being truthful to themselves at this point I was going through therapy I was learning so much and don't get me wrong I'm a learner so I will learn all this information you give me I will store it in my brain and I could go and tell a hundred people if I ever had to turn it on myself, it was the hardest thing that I could ever do. I could not turn it on myself. So I was doing all this work and it just wasn't meaning anything. And it got to the point one day and I was gaining weight because I was doing so much work. Like I was eating. There were certain foods that were creeping back in. 
I, you know, some days I was engaging a lot more than what I was. But what I was searching for, I wasn't finding, you know, and I think what I wanted was I had so many answer, questions in my inside that I wanted the answer to that I was not going to get from anybody by myself. But I hadn't learned this yet. And I was just searching and searching. So I then, until the middle of last year, I was suffering quite badly. I was on an extreme, I won't say numbers, but an extreme amount of laxatives. Mm. I was taking 10 mile walks a day. I wasn't as restricted as much because I was at home with my husband and I was getting fed. So that was kind of getting better. But what happens is you, you hit one habit and then you form another if you're not quite yeah. ready there yet. And so that's what I was doing. And I can remember one day I'd gone out for a walk to go and get my laxatives and I'd walked to the shop and I couldn't afford these laxatives. They're not cheap. I was spending £70 a week on laxatives. I didn't have that many. <laughs> and I went to the shops again. This was a secret because my husband didn't know about it and to buy these laxatives. And I walked home and I was coming home and I was like, I can't, I can't do this no more. Like they don't know about the laxatives. They, my therapist doesn't know about the laxatives. My husband doesn't know. I'm heavily in debt now because I've been spending so much money on it. I don't know what to do. And I sat there and I'd had I'd taken some paracetamol with me and I had a choice. I wanted to either die there and then or go home and tell my husband exactly what happened. And I sat there for a good hour just contemplating life because I didn't know if I could actually carry on my recovery because it was so hard. And I chose to come home. And I chose to come home. And I came mm-hmm. home to my husband and I explained everything. I sat and explained the whole laxatives. I explained that I was in debt. I explained that I was finding recovery extremely hard and it wasn't as easy as what I was finding it, you know, as what it should have been. And so, you know, from that stage onward is when I really engaged in my recovery. It's when I really started to work on myself and actually listen to what they were saying and working my way through it. And so I'd obviously spoke to my therapist about the laxatives. They'd moved me back from a team, another team back to like, they have an in-between team, which is like an emergency team in between before they send you back into inpatient or whether you have a therapy. So I was back into the middle team at this point because I wasn't progressing like I should be. And obviously I was high on laxatives, which was very concern, concerning. Well, I started to engage and I'd got given another person to speak to in the eating disorder team. And she really changed my way of thinking you know, she made me stop everything, you know, she gave me permission to stop. And that is what I needed. Because I felt like I had to do this That's all I'd ever known. It was my only coping mechanisms. But she turned around to me and said, No, stop your exercise. I want you to delete all these apps on your phone that are not helping you. And she sat there and watched me delete all my apps. She told me to stop <laughs> wearing my, my running watch. And she gave me permission. So I gave you permission to not run. And I was like, oh, okay, well, no one's done that before. You know, I just felt like I had to do it because it was what I've always done. And Mm -hmm. so I stopped everything. And I literally did stop all my habits then. And it wasn't hard because this is when the real work began because Mm -hmm. I'd stopped all my coping mechanisms, but I had to learn a new way to cope because those feelings and thoughts don't disappear. It's how you learn to deal with them. And obviously I'd always used food as that way to control to block out how I hated myself you know I still didn't like myself at this point I still couldn't look at myself in the mirror and say oh you look beautiful or I like the way you are or I'm happy with the way I am I still hated myself and obviously what was happening as I was refeeding my body I was gaining weight my shape was changing because your body's refilling a water food it's 
very natural thing to go through when you are refeeding. And I really didn't like myself with it still. Mm. And what I did start to do, and it was something that someone brought up with me before, was to do some mirror work with affirmations. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I used to look at people and think, there is no way I can stand in front of that mirror and say nice words to myself because that's not going to happen. And, then, mm-hmm. and I started to, and it didn't work straight away because it's a practice. And the thing with affirmations I find is you have to feel them as well. So you have to feel them deep inside and believe in them. I had a big issue with feelings and addressing my feelings and how I named my feelings. So I had to go back to a way of child thinking. So I would spend time on my own when I would say feeling angry or sad or fearful. And I'd sit there and I'd label my feelings and I'd label them with colours. So anger would be red and fear would be black and sadness would be blue and even happiness and, you know, joy. I had to label all my feelings. Mm-hmm. And once I'd practiced that and mastered that, I I sat in front of the mirror and I started doing affirmations. And that is the massive turning point in anything that I did is when I started to believe in myself, when I started to feel what I was saying and when I could turn around how I saw myself and started to love myself from within and started to work on myself from within. So, yeah, I think I've just got off a point completely. Mm. (laughs) No, well, thank you, Angela. I mean, goodness me, I mean, what a journey I think you have been on, haven't you? Um, <laughs> yeah so many things so if it's okay that's if I could just pick up on a few things that you've talked about yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess just like going right back and like when you first started using food when you were around 14 and you talked yeah. about kind of you know feeling out of control and food being a way to help you feel in control was that kind of like a conscious thing or did you sort of were you just sort of really in it you know did it make any sense to you what you were doing no I didn't know what I was doing it's only now in hindsight and when I've done the work on the trauma and looking back that Mm. I realized that was why I was doing it and it clicked you know for a long time even into my adulthood I couldn't work out why I was like that as a teenager you know I didn't know why I did those things I didn't know why I went out and put my body out there or why I hurt myself so much and it wasn't until I'd done all the work and was able to then look back and say, okay, that, that was just my coping mechanism. I can't beat myself up for those feelings or thoughts that I had at that time. I knew no different. And it was mm. my way of, as a teenager, to control my situation at that time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I wasn't aware. I was, also I was aware of what I was doing, but I didn't realize how damaging it was or why I was doing it. I just did it. It was just natural mm. to do it to me. It was just the only way I knew how, you know, it was no one sat me down and said this isn't right you know I didn't really have my parents were there growing up they stayed together so I had a nice household but they weren't emotionally supportive so they weren't people that I could go and speak to they weren't helpful if it came to my mental health anything like that so I kind of did battle that on my own as a teenager yeah no sure it sounds like you were just surviving weren't you yeah yeah you just knew things weren't right and that you were kind of a bit lost but you didn't you didn't really probably have the words or the understanding did you you know really makes a lot of sense (laughs) and you said obviously like I don't want to cut you to have to talk about the, the depths of this but in terms of like you just said that actually when you did address the kind of trauma and the deeper stuff that was just so important was it as a stepping stone in your recovery whereas when you'd been doing all the sort of symptom work you just felt you weren't kind of getting anywhere 
yeah so i'm a firm believer that everything has a root cause and you know mm. we have these symptoms on top that will mask what is really hidden behind now what one person sees as trauma can be completely different to somebody else and that is perfectly okay you know the way we process things in our head growing up are different to everybody else so my trauma was abuse and until i worked on that and until i'd learned in my heart to forgive that situation, I don't forgive the person, mm. but I, I'm able to talk about it. I'm able to say, well, that's happened. I cannot change that from happening. I can't do anything about that. But what I can do is learn from that and move on and see why I did the things that I've done. And I was just able to process it, you know, and I processed it. I did a lot of work of writing letters to the person, a lot of forgiveness around it as well. That mm. was the main thing is when I was able to to let go you know I was able to let go mm. and say okay that's what's happened this is now and live in the present mm. yeah I think as well and just so helpful to hear that really as well because I think it's obviously a really scary part for many people isn't it having to sort of perhaps face sometimes that deeper stuff but obviously if we just try and avoid it or bury it or put it away in a box it doesn't ever really go away does it no and that's what I did for years without realizing i boxed it all up you know mm. and I locked the key away and I I was too scared to open that box back up and what happens is when you do lock away something like that it builds up the little things add to it and what you don't realize is you're building that box up and eventually you that box is going to explode it's not going to stay concealed with the stuff that you keep adding to it but that's what I did I piled and piled and piled and piled on top ignored everything that was in the path and just tried to brush it into the, the, the carpet as such. And it wasn't until I started breaking away at that and chipping away at that box that I realized I got this new sense of freedom because I was like, wow, that lightness inside is going because I'm not carrying it so much anymore. Mm, sure. I mean, it's so helpful to hear that because I think as well, you know, it is difficult work, isn't it? But actually coming through that, it does bring freedom and healing. And I believe as well, really can enable you to have a, a really full sort of flourishing recovery rather than perhaps being a bit stuck in that kind of quasi recovery place. Yeah. And that's what I was like for very many years because I was wanted some help and I wanted to stop feeling the way that I felt. Mm. But I wasn't being completely honest. I wasn't opening up fully. And that was what was always holding me back. I used to say, I remember saying to therapists, like, I do so much work and then I hit a brick wall and I can't climb this brick wall. And I don't know the love of me how to get through this brick wall or break it down. And mm. it wasn't until that I started working on the inner side and the childhood stuff that I started taking those bricks out that wall and I was able to get through it. And yeah, it definitely moved my recovery onto a journey. Mm. Sure. And there's probably something as well, do you think, with that about the timing and being ready for it or having some support yeah. around you that's helpful that maybe can sort of just help facilitate that <clears throat> process? Timing is a massive one. You have to do it when you want to do it um, and you have to be fully invested. It's not easy work doing any kind of work on yourself, especially recovery. You can you know, you can take so many steps back and move so many steps forward. It's a constant battle and you have to be prepared for that. So, yeah, so timing was definitely one. The want and the need to do it, you know, and the willingness to do all the work was another thing mm. and being prepared. So that really, really helped. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. 
and it's really interesting just hearing about your sort of experience of obviously like being sort of filtered into the eating disorder service not in the warmest most helpful way at the beginning <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, and then offered obviously being offered day patient treatments which then didn't go ahead because of covid yeah <laughs> what I think is really interesting as well is, you know, I think still so many places in the country very sadly don't offer that day patient option. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's either literally like an hour of therapy a week with a bit of extra input, maybe from dietetics, or it's like yeah. inpatient. And I think obviously outside of COVID times as well, the option <laughs> yeah. of day patient can be really, really valuable, can't it? It's maybe a bit more of a kind of halfway house kind yeah, of thing. And- the thing for me, I actually, when they offered it to me, I didn't, I was like, no, 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 because I didn't want any treatment or whatever. But actually, when I come home and thought about it, before we knew we were going to get shut down by in lockdown, I was like, okay, this is, this is okay. And the more I looked into it, and even I looked into it after, because I was offered it again when with the laxatives to do, but it wasn't so much the same because of COVID, they had to change a lot of it. So in the end, I turned around and said, no, look, I'm going to try a second time on my own. But the availability of it and the actual program, especially where I am, that they provide, it's it's really, really good. It looks good on paper. And for somebody like me that has a family and has six children who is older and is battling, was battling an eating disorder at an older age and doing it then, that, you know, it was quite beneficial to have something available like that instead of having to go into hospital. And you're getting that bit more intense treatment from, like you said, a weekly check-in call or something like that yeah no sure and it sounds like although that exact program didn't go ahead because of covid (laughs) there were some really positive aspects for you of being able to do the treatment at home almost with perhaps quite regular check-ins and it sounds like that your husband's support was just really in it such a valuable part of that whole process as well yeah, I couldn't have done it if I didn't have my husband here and if he wasn't supportive, because I would have just carried on. I would have continued in the patterns of cycling and he really, you know, he was my backbone because I used to say to him, you know, is this OK? To eat? Even though the therapist has told me this was OK. And in the very early days, I still used to ask his permission. Do you think this is OK to eat? You know, do you think I'm OK to be eating now? And he'd be like, yes, it's absolutely fine. And because I trusted my husband and I'd been with him for 14 years and now, he is the love of my life, as cheesy as it sounds. Mm. You know, I believed every word he said amongst anybody else's. So, yeah, mm. he was so helpful. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear, isn't it? And I think just so helpful as well, you sharing about that kind of commission thing because of, you know, it sounds like understandably you needed probably just quite a lot of reassurance and just, you know, permission yeah. to be able to eat or permission to stop some of the behaviours as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'd got so caught up in these habits and these behaviors that I was doing that to me, they were stuff that I had to do. Well, I needed somebody to come along and say, I give you permission to stop, or I believe that you can do this, or yeah. I hold hope that you can do this. And that is what some, a sentence somebody had said to me during one of my treatments was, I hold hope for you today. I'm holding your hope. You've got it inside you, but I'm holding it for you so that you can go and do the work you need to do. And I came home and I was like, oh, okay. I don't need to worry about that bit. I know that I can do it. You believe in me because you're holding on to something of mine. And it just gave me that extra bit of belief that somebody's believing in me. Someone believes in my abilities for the first time. And, you know, I'm accepting this because this is what I want. Yeah, it was such an eye-opener. Yeah, and it's so wonderful, isn't it? And I think I'm such a firm believer as well. I just know my own recovery, really holding on to hope 
and having that belief that recovery is possible and having support that it's possible just so valuable yeah it's a real game changer it is <laughs> so what was it like for you as well Angela because I guess you know obviously I think you made a very brave decision that you, you kind of almost hit that absolute rock bottom where you just thought right okay I'm going to stop things I'm being really open and <laughs> um, you know you really hit that wall didn't you but it, yeah. it really helped you to pivot what was it like then in those early days when suddenly all those coping behaviors had been stripped away? And honestly, it was horrible. <laughs> it was the most scariest time of my life because I'd never lived without coping mechanisms. I'd never lived without them. I had learned how to deal with some of them. But when I finally turned around and, and said, right, I'm not exercising, and that was the last thing that I'd held on to. And I turned around and said, I'm not exercising. I can remember crying and thinking, this is really odd. I don't know what I should be doing now. And that's when I started to form healthy habits. And my healthy habits were to include journaling. Now, I absolutely love to write. I've always wrote in journals growing up, but they were quite negative. So this time I turned them around. And so when I got rid of everything, I formed these healthy habits. So I started, like I said, journaling. I did a lot of affirmation work. I made a habit to be grateful for something every single day. So I would do daily gratification. Now, that's something I could never see before. And I literally, someone ever said to me, what do you feel grateful for? And I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I haven't got a clue. And, you know, it doesn't have to be anything major. Like some days, I'm just grateful to be able to walk out in the sun and feel the heat on my shoulders, you know, or to see the colours of the trees or the colours of the flowers. Now, if I had to tell you back in the day, I didn't see no colours. I used to walk out in the street and I couldn't, everything was just felt so black and white so on top of me that now when I walk out I look at the colors and I can see the colors of the trees the grass I can hear the birds singing I you know I am so much more mindful of my like situation mm-hmm. um, so yeah so what I did is when I was getting rid of those bad habits and I finally got rid of it all is I made a really really conscious choice to create new ones that were going to be super healthy for me and that was the pinnacle moment of my recovery mm. Thank you for sharing that. So, Andrew, as well, did you find as well, did you sort of actually have kind of almost like a kind of a structure for the day of how you sort of use those tools or, or yeah. did yeah, <laughs> did you? Oh, yes. So morning routine. I created a morning routine. I'd heard about it and I made a conscious effort to get up every morning and have a morning routine. That was to myself to start off with. So in the first thing in the morning, I get up and I will journal. I will write in my book about what I'm grateful for. I will just write about my feelings. I'm so conscious every day that I write about how I'm feeling that day or how I felt the day before or write about something that is going to happen for me. I also make a checklist of what I want to get done in that day. Now, I don't give myself massive lists. I make three-point lists and I will say, right, these are the three things, simple things that could be like sort of washing, walk the dog. You know, those are my points. Mm. Like I'm not overloading myself. Obviously, in the very early days, my food structure was, my food routine was very structured. So I'd have breakfast, snack, tea, snack, and it was all at very certain times. And I wouldn't deviate off of that. And that was so that I was fulfilling everything that I needed to do. As I've got further into my recovery, I'm still eating all the same things in the same patterns, but I'm able to shift my timings a little bit more. I am a firm believer in self-care. So I would make sure, and I still do, 
make sure that I have an hour at least a day, which is very hard when you've got six children. But I do mm-hmm. make sure I have an hour at least each day working on myself, on what I want to work on, or just being kind to myself, depending on how I'm feeling that day. Because you don't have, even if you're in recovery and you are better, you don't have, every day is not perfect. You know, you still have days where you feel you know it's hard and you have to deal with that so you have to learn how to use your inner toolbox and start to you know pull yourself out of it so some days I'll take a bath some days it's it's just lighting my favorite candle sitting down with a book you know some days it'd be painting my nails some days it's going out for a run and some days it's going for a walk some days it's baking cakes you know it depends on what I want to do and how I feel but it's for me and it's for nobody else you know this is my time and it's how I look after myself so yeah so that is my structure now I in the very beginning I was very even now actually I still do daily affirmations as well I'm a, a big believer in daily affirmations where I will sit in front of the mirror and I will say I have three I've got a whole list of book of affirmations that I've got anyway that I've stored over time that I say daily and then I have three that I'll pick out and say to myself in the mirror every single morning just to like confirm to myself every day yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mm. and it sounds like the the affirmations part and the mirror work that's been something that's been very helpful in your recovery yeah it was super helpful I never liked having my picture taken I wouldn't look I'd briefly look in the mirror to get ready in the mornings. I hated looking at my body like I said I was so disassociated with myself to sit in front of a mirror on a chair and talk to yourself and actually stare yourself in the eyes was the hardest thing I could ever do and the most uncomfortable thing I could ever do last time got on I'd look in front of it and I'd actually start to like who I was and I started to like my body and you know every single part of it you know I would feel parts of it oh that I'm grateful that I have that part and I look in the mirror and I would affirm to myself that I love myself that I believe in my abilities that you know I am perfect just the way I am and I would just religiously do that every time I walk past a mirror and now I only do it once a day but I used to do it so many times a day just to fulfill what I needed just to keep me going. Mm. So helpful to hear that. And I think just it's incredible the the discipline, I think, and motivation that you've shown, Angela, to you obviously like once you've made that decision, hadn't you, that actually I cannot continue like this, things are going to change. I'm kind of going all in. <laughs> you know, you really have committed to it and I you know of course I I completely hear there's up days and down days and it's still a bit of a roller coaster but just I think it's really helpful as well for the listeners to hear that it's something that it's 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 work isn't it you kind of have to make a decision and then you kind of have to commit to that to practicing the tools and you have to kind of do a lot of repetition because of the old way the old thinking is quite entrenched and yeah you're sort of changing all Go on. It is. And sorry. And some days I still have the old eating disorder thoughts will creep in. But I, I know that I can switch them around, you know. And one thing I will say to people, this is ongoing work. It, it's not going to stop tomorrow. It's not going to stop the next day. You have to be committed to it now for forever. That's how I see it anyway. And you switch it up for different seasons in your life. So you'll switch it up at different times that you're coming through to make it more acceptable and more adaptable, you know. I do all these things on a daily basis for me and it keeps me going, you know, and it keeps me just confirmed to myself. Mm, Yeah, sure. Well, I can really see that it's almost like you're, you've, you've sort of turned your life upside down, haven't you? In a really (laughs) constructive way. 
And Angela, how do you deal with like, if you do have a bit of a difficult day, you know, those ED thoughts come back a bit stronger. What's your kind of number one go-to coping strategy (laughs) or or does it vary a bit depending on, I guess. It will vary and it can vary. So say if I get those intrusive thoughts that come into your head, which will come in all the time, you're not worthy or you shouldn't be doing this. I've now learned a very important skill in my head where I can switch switch it around in my head it will be like no that's I don't believe in those thoughts I don't I'm not going to feed those thoughts so then I'll say no that's not true and I'll try and carry on and ignore them but that's something that I've learned over time it's not something that's going to come naturally to everybody but what I do is I do a lot of self-care so I will Mm. look after myself like I would my child I would give myself so much self-love so much care to know that actually you know, things are going to be all right. I am fully aware now that if I do have a bad day or a bad moment, it's just a fleeting moment. It's not going to last forever. And that I know that I can overcome this and that it's it's going to be okay. I love to run. So even though I stopped all my exercise, I was able to bring running back when I set myself some boundaries. So I had to set myself some very firm boundaries around. I could only run if I'd eaten all my meals. I could only run certain distances I wasn't allowed to over increase it and I have to be super super mindful for it for what I am doing but it's always been something that I've enjoyed so I if I'm not feeling 100% great I do get out and run because when I run which used to be for calories which used to be for how far I could go and how much I can push it I now run really mindfully so when I go out to run I run for me I run and I look at the trees I run to listen to my music or listen to a podcast or you know, I am so mindful of my situation when I'm out running and I just generally enjoy it. And that really does take the edge off a lot of things. Mm, thank you for sharing that. So, Angela, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your journey, because I think it really is one that's so inspiring and gives so much hope. I really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Angela, one last thing as well, actually. Where can people find you if they would like to connect after listening? Yeah, so you can find me on my Instagram page, which is at surviving underscore six underscore. Okay, lovely. And I'm sure people will be getting in touch because I think, you know, you just shared so many sort of tips and so much inspiration And you've actually, you know, I feel like you're not long out of the trenches. So you've got that real empathy and understanding as well, which I think is just really so helpful for people to hear. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Angela's details in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do visit my website at theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd be really grateful if you would subscribe, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm-hmm.